So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. So something generates something, like it generates an image, and then something discriminates or argues against that thing and says, "Uh, that's the image I wanted to see or not, or like... I don't think that's a cat, it is, or, or it is a cat, or something like that. And by these things having a back and forth, they get closer and closer to the thing they're trying to get to, which is like an accurate image of X, or a painting in the style of. So anyway, these things can basically just run by themselves. To have their own. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Ash Fontana. Ash, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. So I uh, want to talk about the book today. want to talk about some interesting things you've done in your career. But uh, I'm interested when you meet somebody at a party and they say, what do you do? What's your answer? Oh, this is a funny one because I don't like starting conversations that way because it's not a... It doesn't really get really quickly to like who someone is necessarily. And so I often take that question in a very different direction. I say things like oh, I ride my bike a bit too much or, oh, you know, I like cooking Sicilian food for my friends. Is in, I take the question as like, what do I do with my time um, <laughs> rather than what do I do for work? So, yeah. And then if, they, if they're really pushing for the work answer, I say I move money around and write books. So, you know, that's if they're really pushing. But I try to take it in a different direction, which is about who I am outside of work so I can leaves them the opportunity to say who they are outside of work. I just think that's a, a more interesting vector to a conversation where you get to know someone rather than a conversation where you get to read what you could read on LinkedIn. <laughs> so let's start, let's start with the book. Tell us about the AI first company. Yeah. So look, there's a lot out there about AI, you know, people I think can sort of get an understanding of the potential of it by reading about cool applications that come out and cool experiments that places like DeepMind are running. And people can get a feel for a lot of the risks by a lot of the catastrophizing that happens and philosophizing that happens around AI. But what people can't really get a feel for is how do they use it? Like how do they use it every day? Whether they're running a family business whether they're a line manager in a factory or whether they're, you know, very high level leader or whether they're just starting their career and want to make like an impact with a little project. People don't really know what to do. There's sort of like a spectrum here of philosophy and programming and there's nothing really in the middle. And in the middle is pragmatism 
And so that's what this book is. It's, it's all about pragmatically what advantage does AI give you? How do you articulate the type of advantage it gives you over your competitors? And what are some words you can use to describe that and to articulate that? Two, how do you build it? Where do you get the data? How do you hire the people to work with the data? And then three, how do you measure if it's actually having any impact? And by the way, measure it so that it doesn't totally go out of control. And so that's roughly how the book is divided up. That's really the knowledge I want to bring into the world by publishing this book, which is the knowledge around how to put this stuff into practice. And the end result is hopefully that we have more AI first companies in the world. And what that means is companies that from day one, think about providing value to people through predictions. Think about giving leverage to people in terms of leverage over time. And that's not what we get from our computers today. We sort of get calculations and we get leverage over sort of intellectual capacity or something. They don't really let us see into the future and therefore make better decisions today. And so that's that's what AI-first companies do and that's what I want to help people build and that's how. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk about AngelList and Canva and stuff you do with Peter Thiel. And, but, but at Zeta Venture Partners, do you understand you guys have about 360 million under management? Is that, is that still right? I found that on the interwebs somewhere. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, roughly. And, and, and it's primarily AI-first B2B companies. Is that kind of the mandate early stage? Yeah, that's right. You know, we back people, I say pre-traction post-data. So before they've necessarily got evidence from the market that people want to buy their product, you know, before they've got a whole lot of revenue or anything like that. But after they've got a little bit of data from somewhere, they might have bought it from somewhere, they might have just sourced it from public sources or, or public repositories, or they might have sort of started working with a customer on a no-fee basis that shared some of their data with them. And then they've run an experiment. They've got this data and they've run an experiment to make a prediction about something. You know, can we predict if something will run out of, run out on a shelf? Like when will we run out of sandwiches today in our deli? Can we predict that? All right, here's all my data on, on that. Here's a couple of photos of the shelf throughout the day. Can we predict that? And so we tend to get involved in companies once they've got that data. And yeah, you know, solutions for businesses of industrial or commercial consequence and using really fundamentally trying to take them from making a prediction into building a product and then ultimately a business. That's what we do at Zeta. Yeah. So, you know, I know we have, we have a number of investment company managers that listen to the show and, and corporate innovators mm -hmm. that look at maybe acquiring somebody, right? When you think about a rookie mistake that people make in that arena, what, what's one of the first ones that comes to mind? Mm, just to clarify, in the arena of assessing a company that's like an AI first company, yeah, like a, an AI first early stage B two B, like in your in your lane, what do you see, folks who aren't specialists? What are some of the mistakes they make? It's a really good question, and it's so hard to narrow in on one thing because this is sort of our whole craft, right? This is the whole thing we try to do at Zeta, which is price the risk that these systems will work better than other people will price them. And I think maybe the biggest category of error people make is not really assessing the 
truly novel way in which the prediction is made because if if the prediction isn't made in a way that's novel anyone with the same data set can make the same prediction and there's data is actually like relatively fungible in a lot of industries so i'll bring this down to an example if you're making we'll just continue the example we had before if you're making a prediction about like inventory on a shelf when will we run out of sandwiches or boxes of pasta on a shelf or whatever a lot of people can go into a store and get the data you need to make that prediction, which is essentially photos of the shelf or someone checking off, like doing a stock take on that shelf. You can sort of get that data pretty easily. And so if the IP, so to speak, is not in is not really special and is not in how you get that data and then make a really good prediction. So essentially build a really good computer vision model that can take those images and figure out if something is on or not at what time and whatnot. If their IP is not there at that model stage, you know, anyone else can just come in, get that data, the checklist, someone doing a stock take and run a simple regression and then produce the same product. And this sort of might be surprising for a lot of people to hear because a lot of people say it's all about the data and not the models. The models are commodity. You know, really what I've found operating on the frontier of machine learning and AI for quite a while is actually the best companies that were backed, the ones that have this durable, sustainable competitive advantage, really developed most of their competitive advantage in the models that they built, not the data that they got. Now, it's both, to be clear. They do have some really interesting proprietary data. They do continue to collect that because of the way people use their product, etc., But, you know, from day one, they had some proprietary research and IP around the modeling they were doing on the data, the AI models that they built, the neural networks they put together, et cetera. And that was really, or is really five, 10 years later, the reason why they're so far ahead of everyone else. So to totally, to summarize all of this, to try to make it really simple, it's not all about the data. It's actually a lot about the models. And I think a lot of people will find that surprising and therefore a lot of people make that mistake. Interesting. Well, let's go Let's go back into your history a bit and then I want to dive more into the book. So a lot of people know the name AngelList. Not everybody knows what they do. And, and so can you give people a little bit more on their model and then what it means to start the money side of AngelList? Sure. So why I worked at AngelList and... Um, what AngelList does is really help more people start companies. It helps more people work for themselves. And so AngelList has a way for you to raise money for a company. It's a marketplace of investors on one side and companies on the other side. And in the middle are sort of people running syndicates to gather groups of investors to invest in companies. It is a place to find talent. So on the, again, another marketplace, like on one side, you've got people looking for jobs at startups, and then you've got startups looking to hire those people. And then it's got product hunt, which is a way for people to discover new products built by these companies that are funded um, and resourced on AngelList. So AngelList, you know, very broadly is a place where people go to get companies off the ground. And it's a really fantastic place for that. You know, millions of companies use AngelList and Lots and lots of people have found jobs on AngelList and lots of products have launched through it. That's what it is. You know, the company was started by two guys, Nivi and Naval, quite a long time ago. And they built this really, really phenomenal community, really high quality community early on. And I joined around the time when 
it was a couple of hundred investors and a couple of thousand companies and they were interacting through sort of like a sort of like a social network, like a Facebook news feed and investors were meeting companies. And, you know, what I was given the latitude to lead there was turn that into a business and sort of and grow it a bit. And so I worked with some really phenomenal engineers to build products that let people invest online. So complete it, get information about a company, sign some legal docs, send some money, etc. I worked with a really good set of people to figure out, all right, how do we structure that legally? How do we manage all the tax reporting, accounting obligations so that we can have lots of little funds that essentially gather these groups of investors so that they can invest in these companies one at a time and the companies don't have to manage hundreds and hundreds of investors. And then got people excited about this and and got people on board with doing this. So got venture funds okay with investing alongside these syndicates of angel investors got really high quality companies on there so that investors were attracted to invest through AngelList and they saw that they could find better companies on AngelList than elsewhere and then created funds on top of this that, you know, once the thing was humming and there were lots and lots of deals happening on AngelList, you could bundle them up into funds. And so then investors could not only come to AngelList and go, oh, there's a cool company I want to invest in. They could come to AngelList and go, I actually want to invest in all the companies on AngelList. So I'm just going to invest in this fund and it invests in 100 companies per year, uh, 100 startups per year. So it's sort of like a startup index fund. So anyway, there are lots of components to that are part of AngelList as a funding platform. And that's really what happened between the years of sort of 2012 and 2015 was AngelList turned from being a social network into being a funding platform with syndicates and money flowing through it and funds on top of it and funds beside it and everything else. And, you know, where it is today and the work by the team today is it continues to be really innovative and they continue to develop all sorts of new things on AngelList, like secondaries and different types of syndicates and whatnot, is, is it's a platform that through various funds manages a couple of billion dollars of investments in some of the, you know, best category defining generational companies out there. So I'm interested in that process. You know, I don't think that, you know, innovation is such a, a buzzword sometimes it almost doesn't mean anything anymore and 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 typically when it does mean something it's usually about uh, a new product or like you know we had a guy on the show today who they're trying to eliminate they're trying to build a, do- a data storage company that doesn't have any do- data storage facilities they're just beaming lasers mm-hmm. between satellites and they're storing it all oh. yeah right and you know it's like blatantly something that hasn't existed before right but mm-hmm. oftentimes i see finance innovations get glossed over or don't get made a big deal of. And yet billions or sometimes trillions of dollars change directions because of them. You know, what, what were the obstacles? What was, what was one of the major obstacles to overcome when you were, when you were building that there? So I love this question as someone who's uh, Venetian. So my, my whole family is Venetian and you know what the Venetians did among many others and other civilizations in history is they brought spending forward by creating financial products and that allows for growth. You know, if you if you know you don't have to pay back something until a certain time in future and someone has priced the risk that you do that, you can spend the money today and therefore you can grow the economy today. And so these, yes, these these financial innovations are what allows us to, to grow the economy to be productive. But they're really challenging. And it really comes down to how you let people price a risk. Well, these financial innovations are really about 
that they're about bringing time forward and you bring time forward by pricing a risk the risk that you know that react that it will converge at the right time you know that basically someone will pay in future and so this leads to the challenge of angel and you know I, I channeled my my venetian ancestors when i was there to to solve some of these challenges which is how do you get people comfortable with investing in startups today given that they may not have met the startup because they're just seeing it online given that you know they may not know when the payoff will happen because they've never invested in startups before they're not used to the timeline and they may not know how to create a portfolio of startups um, or investments in startups such that you know net on a net basis they will eventually see a positive return even if one or two of them don't work out and so there were some of the constituent challenges and so the first one you solve by really effectively presenting information it was a, a presentation and a communication problem and so we solved that by summarizing a lot of the information for people and having a really good team of investment analysts that would go and do proprietary research on these startups and then present it really well pretty old school pretty manual but really important by hosting informational calls and Q&A sessions and things like that by changing the interface of evangelists to be better than a pitch deck basically and provide structured information on companies. So that was one way, communication and information. Another was around getting people comfortable with the people involved in a company. So providing signals around, well, this person who's also investing has invested in these other companies before, and so they have a track record effectively. And then finally, helping people create portfolios. We would do that ourselves. We would say, Here's a portfolio of startups that you can invest in. Oh, by the way, we also educated people on the process of startup investing in general. And actually, before Angelist, there was this thing called Venture Hacks that Nivian Naval wrote, which is like one of the best ways to educate yourself, reading that site. It was a blog, effectively. It was one of the best ways to educate yourself on how to invest in startups. So we used a lot of that content to help people understand the time horizon and the instruments involved and everything else. Anyway, and then finally, bundling these things together so people could develop a nice portfolio. So, you know, all of these things help people price a risk that they hadn't priced before and get comfortable investing today in something that wouldn't pay back for a long time. You know, it's interesting what a magnet education can be. I think that not everybody fully realizes that, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really underdone, I think, in... A lot of finance in general, look, I mean, I think the world would be a much more productive, I'm not going to say better, a much more productive and higher growth place with more financial education. Basically, if more people learned how to spend, save, invest effectively, because we could bring more consumption forward, push consumption off where it was appropriate to do so to manage risk, whatever. So financial education all the way from kindergarten through to, through to retirement is really important and underdone broadly. And it's especially underdone, I think, in uh, a lot of fintech businesses, so to speak. And it's really important to very carefully educate people and work with people or consumers of your fintech product that only truly understand it. And I think a lot of companies might be tempted to bring people on board onto their fintech product as quickly as possible even if those people aren't quite ready to utilize that product in the right way or may not be ready to bring that into their portfolio of assets. And I think the process of educating someone before 
they decide to adopt your product is something that is tough for, you know, a tough trade-off to make because you've got to invest in the education and they're not using your product while they're being educated. But, you know, eventually, obviously, it's good for both sides. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but but tell people about TopGuest and, you know, from co-founding a business that goes from zero to eight-figure sale in 18 months. Yeah, look, it was an amazing experience. I had worked on startups from high school onwards, like created little websites and all that sort of thing. And then, you know, I, I wanted to... I was also investing and, and really wanting to build myself up as an investor and practice the craft of investing. And so I moved to New York and I was working in investing, growth stage investing and whatnot. But I just had an amazing opportunity to partner with someone called Jeff and then bring in an old friend, Ozan, and work on this idea that was really good at that point in time, which was there was all this social information coming online, social data. Foursquare, Facebook, all this location stuff, Twitter, everything was coming online. And we really focused on location, social and location data. And a lot of companies didn't know how to use that data. So we just provided a way for them to gather all of that and meld it with all of their existing data that they had from marketing initiatives like loyalty programs and figure out what someone wanted next based on where they were going and what preferences they were expressing. So look, it was a cool company to build at that point in time. It was a cool company to build because, you know, it was at the start of this big data era. But ultimately, like, you know, we were entrepreneurs with with certain goals and whatnot and, and someone came to us and sort of melded that into their business. So, you know, we ended up selling it pretty quickly. But it's 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 good to go through the sort of start to finish of, of, of a company's life really quickly, you just pick up so much and, you know, every experience you have building a company and trying to bring something to market that didn't exist before gives you a lot of empathy and understanding for the the entrepreneur's journey. And I've done that a few times now. And, and each time I've learned something a little bit different and you know, fundamentally be reminded, being reminded of what it's like to have no one really care about what on earth you do day to day for quite a while until they really do. And that's the that's the, the really tough bit about being a founder. You believe before anyone else believes. And that's a, a weird sort of psychological state to be in and something that I have to help founders through every day now. So it was good having yeah. done it myself. You know, it does make me think about something. I mean, I know you started at Macquarie. I started at City and M&A. Mm-hmm. And like, there's some advantages. There's some, there's some mental models that were helpful to me. But I do feel bad mm-hmm. often for investors, especially younger folks at funds, who have no entrepreneurial experience and mm-hmm. they're supposed to be this expert. They're supposed to be making judgment calls. And there's like, there's just such lack of empathetic context. You know, it really, mm. it really seems like such an advantage of literally sitting in the other seat and, and it's the hot seat because the buck stops yeah. at you and you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I like how you frame that because you know what I will say, I don't think the, the operating experience or the domain expertise you get is relevant at all as an investor. That becomes stale really quickly. And I don't think as an investor having operating experience, so to speak, whether it's in a functional role like sales or HR or marketing is very relevant at all. It becomes stale. Every company is different. I don't think that's relevant or useful to a founder when you're on the investor side. But yes, I like how, what you focus on there. The, the, the felt experience of being a founder is really relevant. And look, I think 
I see what you're saying. And, and on one side, I do sort of think that it would be really challenging if you haven't had that experience yourself to, to really work with a founder on the other side, on the investor side. That said, you know, it's, it's easy to develop, you know, through, through coaching and good conversations and just being a really good listener and, and being a person that cares, you can develop that for sure. But it's, it's a bit easier if you felt it yourself. It's hard to sort of feel something secondhand, I guess. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the book. And, and I think one of the things that I like the most mm. that you said is thinking about AI in terms of predictions. You know, that feels so much mm. more tangible to me. And as soon as mm. you said it, I started thinking about some things that, that we'd like to have some predictions on. You know, our, our main model yeah. is build a media company. Like, you know how... Bloomberg, when those guys sell terminals, they never have to explain who Bloomberg is. Like everybody, everybody knows who Bloomberg is, right? Like Red Bull, you know, they've got a, they've got a for-profit media company that just happens to make it really easy to sell cans of sugar water, right? This Mm -hmm. idea of like, can we build a media company that is genuinely helpful to entrepreneurs and, Mm -hmm. and then say, Hey, by the way, with some of those earnings, are you interested in buying some boring, reliable real estate with us? You know? So as I think about this and I think about what, what are the things that we can offer? Like, Hey, I'm thinking about like Netflix style predictions of like, well, if you liked this episode and that episode, you might like this one too. Cause now that we're almost at 600 episodes, like there's a lot, right? Just of this, but I just think about trainings and I think about checklists and I think about cheat sheets we want to build. We're, we're thinking about running a masterclass for M and a, you know, most Entrepreneurs are amazing at selling their product, but they've never sold a company. So how can they how can mm. they prep for that ahead of time? You know, it, it would be great for us to have prediction engines to like to quickly help them with the things they want help with, you know? And so thinking about it in terms of predictions instead of artificial intelligence and the black box that it could feel like it makes it more accessible to me yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to that's good to hear because I try to start the book from the perspective of or where people are at, which is talking about AI and the history of AI and neural networks, but very quickly reframe, which is like, look, that's just a tiny part of like what this bigger trend is all about. This bigger trend is all about, as I said before, giving you leverage over time and helping you make decisions, Um, giving you decision-making leverage by being able to see a little bit ahead to make a better decision today. And, the way you do that is often not with a neural network or an AI in a very broad sense. It's often with just a pretty simple algorithm, you know, a set of data science techniques or something like that. It's often with something that I would call like lean AI or just called data science or just call statistics. It could be with lots of different things. And so this era, and I sort of call this like the AI first century, we're halfway through this AI first century that started in the 50s when people started thinking about encoding the way we make decisions with our brain onto computers. This AI first century is not just all about these like super fancy systems that require a lot of resources to build, a lot of computers, a lot of data, a lot of people that are really smart with putting data into computers. It's not just all about that. It's about everyone trying to think, well, what information do I need to make this decision How do I get the data? How do I turn it into the information? Then how do I learn more quickly? Like that's what it's really about. It's about learning more quickly 
so that you're learning so fast you sort of even get ahead of yourself and can make your prediction. And that's what I call like a data learning effect. And again, it doesn't involve necessarily AI. It just involves getting data, processing it into information, and then learning over that information again and again and again. So you get better and better at being a step ahead. And that stuff compounds over time. Like as you see more and more, more and more different situations, more and more different scenarios, more and more different versions of the input data, you get better and better at it. So I can give lots of examples, but that, that's what this is all about. It's not about, you know, automatic, like playing chess better than a computer. It's not about playing games better than a computer. It's not about spending $10 million to get computers to read books and write books and make weird looking artwork and whatnot. It's not necessarily about that. It's just about making better decisions. So I really appreciate the simplification there. So let's say somebody like me doesn't doesn't know where to start, but we get we hear about something like this, we read your book, and we think, oh yeah, I've got something that we'd like predictions on. Where do we start? Who who's our first hire? Do we do we bring in an agency? Do we hire an employee? What where you know mm. complete newbie? And we're saying, yeah, actually, we should be embracing that. Where where's the baby steps? Yeah. Good question. I mean, I think it all starts with writing it down. So articulating it properly, which is, you know, what data learning effect do I want to build here? Basically, what do I want to get better and better at over time? What prediction do I want to make over what period of time, whatever else? So writing it down. And I give in the book all these ways to articulate that and like a step-by-step, what input do I have here? How do I process it? What output do I want to get? And then how will that whole process of getting an input, processing it, getting an output, how does that get better? And how does that cycle get better and better over time? So one is just writing down what you want, what your goals are and, and how you think you might get there. Two is then going away and getting the data that you don't have to make that decision. And so then the middle part of the book is actually the biggest part of the book. And I wasn't expecting this. But it's all about like all the weird and wonderful ways you can get data. So to your question, often it doesn't start with hiring anyone. It just starts with getting ideas or trying to find, getting ideas for trying to find data. And the book gives you a huge amount of them and lots of different checklists. You know, it's like, well, have you considered going to government to get the data? Have you considered synthesizing the data? Have you considered building an app that collects the data? Have you considered forming a partnership? It goes through all of these things. So often it's like, okay, articulating what you want, figuring out how to get it, how to get that data, and then maybe, to your question, figuring out who to hire to work with that data. And then again, the book goes through, okay, a data scientist is different from a data engineer, is different from a machine learning engineer. How are they different? Where do you find them? How much do you pay them? All that sort of stuff. The book does cover all of that. But often by the time you've got to the point where you've articulated what you need, you've got the data as the input to the system, you can probably develop a really simple predictive model in Excel or with arithmetic on a piece of paper or in a calculator. So often you don't even need anyone at that point. You you can probably like get to or make a pretty simple prediction yourself as someone who's like relatively numerate and whatnot, someone not you necessarily as one who is relatively numerate. So often you don't need to hire anyone to get started. And there's a chapter in the book called Lean AI, which shows you how to go from start to finish there just with what you have without hiring anyone, without doing anything, just to see if you can do it. 
And then of course, if it's working, like if that prediction is super valuable and then you want to make that prediction, you know, automatically at scale over millions and millions of examples and whatever, then the rest of the book can teach you how to do that too. But lean AI is all, all about like just getting started with what you have. And often that's, often that's possible, not always, but often. Well, that, that's helpful to break it down like that. I might have to get somebody better at, at Excel than I am to come in and do it. But, you know, sometimes, well, as you're thinking that I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, well, we have data on which episodes get downloaded more, you know, as yeah. we're we're going to start cutting clips from this kind of like the Joe Rogan show where he's got the yep. little five minute clips out of it. Right. So, you know, YouTube and other folks will be able to give us data be yep. very easy to stick like a comments tab, even if we just had something counting how many comments something has. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I'm just thinking of like ultra basic versions. And as you're saying that it yeah. starts feeling like, Oh yeah, well that's, we can probably come up with some of that, you know, n- without yeah. too, too much effort to actually start having some data. Right. Yeah. And that's a really good example to bring up because you know, what you can see in that example is one, you've already got one set of data, which is how many listens does each episode get? And all you really need to do to start making a prediction is get some other data that corroborates that. So like, you know what, what output you're getting to, which is like, we want more people to listen to this stuff because that means more people are finding it useful. But what are the features that's predictive of a listen? So then all, you've got one data set, which is like the output. And what you want to do is figure out what leads to that. So then you just have to get one other data set. And so, you, you know, you get another data set by processing the videos and going, all right, do 40-minute ones, do better than 20-minute ones. So that's another data set, the length. Or do episodes where people talk really quickly, do better than where people talk less quickly. And you can get, that's another data set, the speed of talking. And you can use various things to process your video to tell you that. Or where there's a banner image at the start, or there's a checklist at the end or whatnot. So the point is, once you get four or five of these little data sets, and you've got the output here, which is the thing you started with, how many listens does it get? You can just run a regression to say like, well, this is predictive of listens, or this is one of those four things is predictive of listens. Like you have a hunch about what might be predictive of a listen, but you need to go out and get the data to figure out what is predictive of a listen. And so again, it just all comes back to what are you optimizing for, which is listens? And then how do you get data? What do you think could be predictive of that? What are your heuristics? What have you learned might be predictive of that? Just like, what are your hunches really? And then how do you get the data to confirm or deny that hunch? And that's it. That's all it really takes to get pretty far. You know, what's interesting about that is I'm thinking of a much more manual version of that, but we had this guy, Brendan Kane on the show. He's got this amazing book, Hook Point, that came out, but his previous book is called Zero to a Million. And he just teaches like, hey, when I had to get lots of attention for movies when I worked in Hollywood, here's how I did it. And then here's how I ramped up Taylor Swift's social media and working with Rihanna and all, Katie Kirk, all these people. And essentially, it's like, it's essentially what he boils it down to is testing and optimizing social media posts and like running dark posts on Facebook that, you know, they're not going to your audience. You're trying to mount on the, all these other people. And he just tests a whole bunch of variations until he gets the result at which point he does put it out to his audience. And, you know, Katie Kirk videos that were not getting lots of views, like what have we got 20 or 30 million views for, you know? And what's fascinating is thinking like, okay, well, 
<laughs> could you could you just build a computer system that does that right and builds in the variations yeah, and the runs a test for you yeah and so that's it's so funny you bring that up because that is such a clear articulation of what the opportunity is right like what we've really done in going from this big data era to this ai era is much of the same stuff just quicker and more automatically and so a lot of what you hear as being AI is really just a lot of iterations and derivations and whatever else happening really, really quickly with less and less people involved at each step. And so, you know, you start with something that's very manual, like putting up your own Facebook ad, seeing what it, what it spits out, seeing how many leads it generates, whatever else. And then you get to the point where a machine is doing that for you. And so it's just, abstracting away, automating away and whatever else. But the point is that it, it all starts with exactly what you're articulating. And over time, yeah, you can use more and more of these AI-first companies' technologies and AI-first products, so to speak, to just automate it all once you know it's working. But you've got to start with your own knowledge first. And, yeah, that's, that's all it really does is just makes it all happen a bit quicker. Yeah. Well, what's something coming in the world of artificial intelligence or machine learning that maybe the rest of us who aren't in it every day don't, don't recognize it's on its way or is coming faster than maybe the rest of us recognize. Mm -hmm. So I'll describe something cool and then something scary. And it's sort of, they're quite related. So the cool thing is, and this has got a bit of press, but probably not outside of the little AI community. It hasn't got much press outside of that, except in a trivial sense is just using these things called generative adversarial networks for more and more different applications. So what they are, think of them as like a debate. It's like a generator and a discriminator. So something generates something, like it generates an image, and then something discriminates or argues against that thing and says, uh, that's the image I wanted to see or not. Or like, I don't think that's a cat It is, or, or it is a cat or something like that. And by these things having a back and forth, they get closer and closer to the thing they're trying to get to, which is like an accurate image of X or a painting in the style of. So anyway, these things can basically just run by themselves to have their own little debate and get closer and closer to an output. What they can be used to do is generate a lot of data. So they can be used to generate 100 paintings. This is the popular example that made it into the press. 100 paintings in the style of Van or a hundred sounds that are sort of like a bird, but they don't actually know what a bird is or what a bird sound is. They just know the sort of rough features of it and they argue their way into a corner, which is like, okay, we think this is actually like a bird until they agree. So these things are really cool because they can generate data we don't have or can't afford to buy or can't procure or whatever else, which again, going back to a lot of what we said, is often the first step, just getting that data. So these things are cool. GANs, generative adversarial networks, and they lead into things like what you know we call synthesizing data or, or the synthetic data revolution. So that's really cool. The scary part of this is, you know, not necessarily just for GANs, but for machine learning models in general, is what I'd call like adversarial machine learning. And so a lot of these machine learning systems are operating every day to recognize things, to recognize something in an image and whatever else. And adversarial machine learning is where someone 
an adversary throws a bunch of examples at a, three, a machine learning model and basically gets the model to learn the wrong thing and then breaks it. And so, for example, you could have something that is, I'll pick a, an example from daily life. So Uber has a model in its app now that gets you to take it, recognizes if you're wearing a mask so that it can tell if you're wearing a mask before you get into an Uber to protect the driver and to protect yourself. Now, what someone could do is basically spam Uber with a whole bunch of images of someone wearing less and less of a mask to the point where the next person that uses it could not be wearing a mask and passes in the positive and it says, oh, you know, like they're not actually wearing a mask, but the model thinks they're wearing a mask because someone has basically got the model to converge on a definition of wearing a mask that's not actually wearing a mask, if, you, if that makes sense. So they can spam it with a series of images that have less and less of a mask in the picture and it starts thinking that that is actually what a mask looks like, a novel face. So anyway, that's what an example of like adversarial machine learning uh, could do. And that's sort of scary when you think about all the ways in which image recognition models are deployed in the real world for security tests and whatever else and how easy that would be to do. So what you're telling me is I can go visit the inside of the CIA now because I'll just have it. I'll just have the the cameras recognize me as an employee. Yeah. Look, there's lots and lots of different ways that uh, this could be deployed, which would be which would be really scary. And look, it's it's respon- it's incumbent upon the designer of the system to be responsible and build AI that has checks and balances in it. And I talk about this a lot in the book. How do you do that? And and it's incumbent upon the AI community to develop ways that can sort of make more make models more robust to adversarial attacks as well in the way the models are designed, not just the way that they're checked and monitored. So uh, hopefully we can all work towards that as a community. It does make me feel like there's a, a growing revenue opportunity in further digital security. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, as always, but particularly today. Well, listen, I know we're winding down. Besides going to Amazon mm. and getting their copy of the AI First Company, connecting with on mm-hmm. LinkedIn or Twitter, mm-hmm. going to the ZetaVP.com, any place else that we should send mm-hmm. people today? Yeah. Again, I'm Ash Fontana, A-S-H-F-O-N-T-A-N-A on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk to people about all of these concepts and any ideas they have on this fora. Uh, and then AI-First.org is where I'll gradually be collecting lots of lots of material and content and whatnot around this idea of an AI first company and where you can just sort of read excerpts from the book and see checklists and things like that. So that website will be up around the type, time of the book's launch on the 4th of May. And then, yeah, you can buy it in bookstores and online around that time as well and Audible, of course. Yeah, you know, uh, I see on LinkedIn you're out in San Francisco, but something mm-hmm. I didn't ask is is where you grew up and what kind of advantages you think that gave you. Oh, that is a great question. So I grew up in Australia. I think the obvious advantages of growing up in Australia is, you know, it's a country that's uh, relatively wealthy and whatnot and a good education system and healthcare system. And I'll just start by saying, like, you know, we can never underrate the advantages those basic things give you, basic in the de- in the developed world, for sure. I think the one thing has that I think it's funny. It, it gives me an advantage in terms of just, like, 
being a person in society, it's, but, it's, but actually it's an anti-advantage, is Australia has this very strong sense of egalitarianism. And that is no one's better than anyone. And everyone should have a very similar level of access, equal access to things and be treated very fairly. And no one should think they're better than anyone. And everyone should engage with others on the same terms. And so in a sense, that's like an anti-advantage or like an attitude against having an advantage. But actually what it gives you in practice is, I think, and I think this is what I've certainly got from growing up in Australia and and an advantage in in a very crude sense in in the commercial world, which is an ability just to speak to speak to anyone. Like no matter what their occupation, no matter where they're from, I I don't even try to do this just because I grew up in Australia. I innately just approach all these conversations as have having equal value, and there's always something interesting to learn about someone. And everyone has something to say, and everyone's experience is unique. Everyone's experience of the world and of reality is unique. And if you just ask the right questions, and this goes back to your very first question, for example, if you don't start a conversation with what do you do, but rather like, oh, what have you learned this week? Or what's really important to you right now? Or what are you concerned about? Or, you know, what do you like to do on your Saturday morning? If you start a conversation with the right question, you can learn something from anyone. And that's a very Australian thing to just go up to anyone and talk to them as a person, not based on who they are or what they do or how much money they you know, it's funny. So one of my very best friends grew up in Sunshine Coast and he's over mm-hmm. here now, but but he's always trying to say, like, you need to come over to Strapbook Island and come surfing. So I've seen mm-hmm. some pretty beautiful pictures there, but I, I've only been to Sydney and Perth, but but I like I really liked them both. You know, it's funny. I think about, you know, I talked about having Cameron Adams on the show, you know, co-founder of Canva. And were they the first kind of zero to a billion dollar tech company out of Australia? Oh, no, 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 they weren't. There were actually a lot of Australian companies in the 90s that were really successful. Oh, okay. Canva's an amazing company. I think Canva was, it was my first angel investment ever. Okay. And it was the first angel investment I made that went to a billion dollars in value. Pretty fun. And you're st- are you still an advisor over there? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, cool. I mean, I was mostly involved early on when Cam and Cliff and Mel were getting started, even before it was Canva, actually. But yeah, I, I still meet up with them. I'm hopefully meeting up with them next week. Oh, cool. What what other of your investments have, have hit that over the billion mark? Ha, a few. Not a lot of them are public in terms of the oh, valuation okay. or in terms of the existence, even. But yeah, we've been lucky enough to be involved with lots of companies through Zeta, but also personally. And then, you know, a lot of people would say, well, a lot of the investments through AngelList have ended up being worth a fair bit. So yeah, it's a long list. I, I sort of feel a bit funny talking sure, sure. about that. Uh, That's okay. Terms. But but yes, a few. And, and interestingly to your question about Australia, look, there are a heap of tech companies here that are at that level now. And very interestingly right now, there's this reverse brain drain happening where because Australia has managed this pandemic situation, this global health problem really quite well locally. A lot of people are coming back to Australia and starting their companies now. So I think in a couple of years, there'll be a whole new wave of double or triple the amount of companies that are doing, were started here and are doing really well here because so many people are coming back now to start them. Very cool. Maybe, maybe last one here. What, mm-hmm. What's involved in being a mentor at the Thiel Fellowship? Oh, that was a really fantastic experience. So for the audience's benefit, this was a program 
that started as 20 under 20, which is essentially giving people money so that they could delay the decision to go to college and work on a project they wanted to work on. And there are all sorts of amazing young people involved in the program that had all these interests in various fields, whether it was nuclear fission or software or biology or whatnot. And there were some mentors that were sort of brought in to help them work through things. And so it was really just, you know, talking through ideas and helping people bring their ideas into reality and going on camps with them and having dinners. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, some of those people have gone on to do some really cool things like invent Ethereum and start super successful companies and uh, develop nuclear reactors in their, in their, in their garage. So um, <laughs> it's, that was a really, really amazing visionary thing that Peter Thiel did. Well, as a, as a university dropout myself, I, I have some love for, for what he's done there. Yeah. It's a good thing to get people to think about. <laughs> well, listen, maybe to, maybe to finally finish here, what's, uh, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Make yourself redundant. So the CEO at the time of Macquarie, Alan Moss, said this. He's like, look, I got one bit of career advice for you. Make yourself redundant every day you go to work. And it's really good advice because it's something that really gets you to focus on training and bringing up the people around you so that they can do more and more of the job of the organization and your job. It's about, it gets you to think about process and automation and like, putting things into practice. And it it ultimately is about self-actualization for everyone. And, you know, in, in the way it was framed in terms of yourself, like, look, if there's something you find really easy to do, you know, maybe move on and get closer to like the next thing for you, the next thing that you really want to build or think about or, or contribute to the world. And you can only make space for the next thing by making yourself redundant in the previous thing. And so I think turning up to work every day and thinking, all right, how can I make something I do a bit redundant is for a lot of people scary because they like to have get a control over things and they like to feel valued. They like to know that they're needed for certain things, but really they're going to help themselves and the people around them self-actualize more if they try to make themselves redundant. So I thought that was really good advice. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I do mm. think about this idea of like, you know, especially for people who are employed, you know, it's pretty hard to get promoted if they don't have anybody to take your spot, you know? Yeah, that as well. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, fun conversation. Congrats on the book and and all the success Thank and, you, and uh, good to talk here. Awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye, everyone.